there are some pretty significant positives that do come with surveillance as well. Uh, to what extent can those be disambiguated from the negatives? Uh, and, and to what extent do you feel that that free societies, dem democracies are going to embrace that, that slightly different social contract? I mean, it seems to me at least somewhat inevitable that we'll take a few steps in that direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say state surveillance has two sides of a coin, right? So you talked about the positives where we had profiled a Chinese city very close to Shanghai called Hangzhou, in which the state surveillance system was used to ensure law and order on the street, for example. So the same public, um, same publicly installed cameras with facial recognition that were supposedly catching Uyghur terrorists or, you know, or people whom the Chinese government felt might be troublemakers in Xinjiang, the same sort of cameras and the same technology would be turned on persons of interest um, in, in a Chinese city with like wealthy Han Chinese. And when I, you know, I define persons of interest as the, the same way the Ministry of Public Security in China defines them, like people who might be fugitives or, you know, probably, or the other category would be like, past drug offenders mm -hmm. or people that they knew were selling drugs on the street or um, the mentally ill that had escaped from homes, you know, um, the, the, the type of people that if you were a parent and you had your son or daughter walking on the street, you'd be pretty alarmed if they had bumped into them. So yeah, in, in a place like Hangzhou and other wealthy Chinese cities, the state surveillance system is definitely used for more beneficial means, but essentially, you know, they're, they're Two sides of the same coin um, without the right checks and balances it can easily veer from the positive side to the very sinister and nefarious side welcome to the early advantage where we normally unpack financial topics but today because i have authoritarian control over this podcast we're unpacking a topic about china political technological, uh, some economic as well. What does China's surveillance state mean to you? And could it happen in the West? I could think of no better person to help me discuss this topic than the very author of Surveillance State, uh, Lisa Lin, who by day is a Wall Street Journal reporter and had the honor of being booted out of China, along with a lot of other journalists for Western publications a couple of years ago. So joining us from Singapore is Lisa Lin. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, James. Um, and, and perhaps I should say up front that I wasn't booted out of China. Uh, a lot of my colleagues were. Oh, got it. Okay. Fact check me, please. <laughs> Fact check me. I assumed you were because you seem to have departed. But, but yeah, please clarify. My co-author was booted out of China. And it did come as um, a bit of a surprise to us as we were working on, on the book because we just felt we had a little bit more time for him there. Uh, but because uh, with journalism and the way geopolitics went, uh, we became, you know, no, American journalists or, or journalists working for American publications became kind of pawns in the geo geopolitical game, and he got booted out early 2020. So before I get to the, the, the specific questions, just kind of a, a wrapper question overall, like what standard question, what was your motivation? Like what prompted you to write this book? Mm, that, that's actually a really good question. And, and I would say like the genesis of this went back to 2017 when Josh and I uh, were, we were, we were noticing how, you know, the Chinese state was just encroaching into its citizens' lives a lot more than it used to. Um, it, it started with, you know, cameras 
popping up on the street. And then you start hearing rumors about social credit systems. And when we really started to dig into this, that was when we realized, uh, you know, the, the Chinese police were using facial recognition systems in ways that weren't being used by the West. Um, and that that got us on this journey, looking into the various types of surveillance in China. And what really sealed it as a topic for a book was when Josh went to Xinjiang, uh, which is this northwestern region of China where about 12 million Turkic Muslims reside. Uh, Xinjiang's always been seen as a bit of a restive region by the Chinese Communist Party. So this time when Josh went there, he was shocked at the level of surveillance. Uh, that the Uyghur uh, ethnic minority was under. And after, after we left, um, we decided that, you know, this was a topic that needed more unpacking. That some, it wasn't something just merely Wall Street Journal stories could tell. Hence the book. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. I, I've been to Xinjiang, actually, maybe probably four or five years before uh, Josh was there, at least in, this, in his uh, uh, kind of epiphany moment. But it's a beautiful place, you know, and even then the, the Uyghurs were not terribly happy with, with how the, the government or the ethnic Han were, were treating them. Um, so anyway, on to the questions, though. Just big picture question first. Uh, I'm going to read a 2009 communication from, we, we know, courtesy of WikiLeaks, actually, from the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. It said, describing Xi Jinping, Xi, as, who is the leader of China, if someone's just tuning in, uh, Xi is supremely pragmatic and a realist, driven not by ideology, but by a combination of ambition and self-protection. Now, Lisa, we just had the 20th uh, Chinese Communist Party Congress, where she got uh, rubber stamped, if you will, for another term and essentially cemented control. Obviously, this, the markets did not like this. They, they took it as a negative. Uh, during the Congress, she said he wants China to lead the world in influence by mid-century. How big of a role does surveillance, knowing that she is an autocrat and, and uses has a very kind of controlling uh, behind the scenes style, how big of a role does surveillance play in China's reaching that goal? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in, in that question, but perhaps I can take it step by step. So, yes, we did have the party congress over the weekend. And yes, she was he, he basically was signed in for another five years as Chinese president and, and head of the Communist Party in China. But I think what really kind of surprised people uh, over the weekend wasn't that she was in power for another five years. It was that he had managed to essentially pack all of his allies um, in, into the Chinese Politburo Standing Committee, which essentially is... China's apex of power. Like if you think about China's C-suite, like these seven people are the ones. Um, and in the past, it wasn't always, you know, one-sided or, or it wasn't everyone who agreed with Xi who was in that standing committee. Um, and it, it consisted of a mix of economists, you know, technocrats, as well as like people who were very politically driven, like Xi Jinping. I think what we saw over the weekend was a clean sweep by Xi himself, uh, by putting a lot of his allies in the standing committee, essentially sealing the deal that there would be very little opposition to his policies going forward. Uh, and that, with that background, you know, I'll jump into how like Xi Jinping's really pushed the development of the surveillance state in China. Um, in China, you've always seen this this desire to control people through surveillance, and we've seen it, you know, in the past through the Dang'an. And the Dang'an essentially is the Chinese word for like a, you know, a dossier, 
a personal dossier uh, that the Chinese government keeps in which its contents would include not just your personal information, but it would include you know, where you used to school, your academic reports, appraisals by your peers, your teachers. And if you were in the workforce, it would be appraisals by your supervisor. Right. Um, and the Dangan was one thing, you know, one use of surveillance we saw in the past that China had um, resorted to to try and keep um, political control. And what happened under Xi Jinping was, I think we saw two, two main things. First, under Xi Jinping, there was a strong desire by Xi himself to adopt surveillance as a means of social control. Um, and secondly, I think we saw a really big breakthrough in the technology itself, which enabled China to take surveillance to the heights that we see at this moment. So back in 2009-2010, uh, what researchers in the West found out was that you could really greatly accelerate um, artificial intelligence and, and the training of algorithms for facial recognition or image recognition by using a particular, particularly fast processing chip. That's called the graphics processing unit, um, which was originally meant to speed up your computer when you play like, video games. Gaming, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. But it ended up being like it ended up ushering and it ended up ushering a new age um, in the development of artificial intelligence because it enabled deep learning and enabled algorithms to learn much more quickly and emulate like the human brain, for example. And that enabled a lot of commercial applications of AI, including facial recognition, which is what we're seeing being used in China in a very big way for social control. Um, so all that being said, you know, you asked about how surveillance helps China. Essentially, you know, how surveillance helps China kind of in, increase its influence. Yeah, leading the world in influence or world domination, whatever. That's right. So I, I think what we've definitely um, concluded from our book research is that China is proposing its model of state surveillance and the social contract that comes with it as an alternative um, to to the to as an alternative to the democratic model. So it, what it's trying to do is it's trying to say that with enough data mining, with enough data collection, you are able to predict problems, predict social issues, and and fix them, even before, like e even without free elections or the free press. So that model is gradually picking up steam in certain parts of the world, um, and it's definitely creating a safe space for China going forward, even if it's not. You know, increasing influence, which is, which is quite interesting. And, and by the way, we don't have time to go go into it on this show. But your book talks a lot about how American technology companies uh, essentially uh, helped, and, and in some cases are still helping the Chinese surveillance state to get moving and, and, and roll along. Uh, but in, in certain, I guess, African dictatorships, we've seen that Chinese model exported rather directly. But what is the risk to to the free world? I mean, we know, yes, you know, the, the, the Chinese model. You know, social stability is is the number one goal, essentially, of the Chinese Communist Party, right? They, they want total control. So that's one motivation. But the other thing that makes this happen is the technology, as you just mentioned, it's just so cheap now. It's so easy to use. It's almost irresistible. And, and, and just I found in your book, and I'm reading here, as of 2016, which is six you know years ago, <clears throat> more than 50% of Americans had been unknowingly placed into some sort of police lineup just because of their driver's license photos. And that number is certainly much higher now. Um, I guess my question is, what is the risk 
whether it's, you know, black, white or gray area that, I mean, are, are we just inevitably moving towards a world with, with greater surveillance technology everywhere? I think we've definitely opened the Pandora's box when it comes to such technology. And, and China has done way more than any other country in the world to promote the use of surveillance globally. And not because they're you know, not because they're encouraging it or anything, but just simply, you know, the economics of surveillance. China has made it very, very cheap to produce surveillance cameras and mass market them. So that kind of essentially lowers the barriers of entry for any country, right, interested in like a state surveillance system. So China's definitely, you know, help the states. China's definitely helped surveillance make big strides across the globe. You know what I would say. Um, what I would say on whether the state, whether surveillance is here to stay or not, it's definitely here to stay. I think the bigger question to ask now is what should we do about it? What are the checks and balances that we could put in place, right? And and get the conversation rolling on on these questions. Yeah, to totally right. I mean, at least I, I agree with that. Um, I don't know if it's totally, it totally makes sense to me. The the question I was going to ask next is is kind of a follow up to that, which is. Um, doesn't this stuff automatically put more power, tend to put more power towards the government? I mean, it's tempting to blame the technology, but your book has a chapter on Hangzhou. This is a city where Alibaba is from in China, it has this City Eye project, which uh, is this kind of massive surveillance project used for, for good and, and, and for bad, so to speak, in Western sense. But it has a lot of positives, which are interesting, too. But the thing that the strange thing that popped in my mind was the U.S. Second Amendment which gives Americans the, the right to bear arms or technically the right to have a militia, it says, literally speaking. Um, but that was done at a time when the American founding fathers had just um, banded together to overthrow England. So the idea of the average person having a gun and being ready to assemble together to fight a, a, an oppressive government was like fresh in their minds. But that's not realistic these days, right? We don't just have guns. You know, there are, you know, nuclear weapons, there's chemical weapons, there's all kinds of things that you certainly would not want, no matter how, you know, how far to the right you are, you would not want in the hands of the average person. In other words, the government gained more power as weapons technology advanced. Uh, is there a parallel with surveillance technology? So there aren't any really good academic studies that I came about linking state surveillance, the Chinese style, sort of say state surveillance with like helping to prolong a government's um, time and power. Mm. But what we do profile in the book is the example of one country. Um, this is not an academic study, of course, but the one country that we looked at, um, and it's Uganda. It's a sub-Saharan African country that has been ruled by the same person since the mid-1980s. And in Uganda itself, the Chinese state surveillance system actually did help this dictator prolong his rule. Um, and, and I can explain that a little bit more. So in Uganda, what happened was in 2015, uh, Huawei actually gifted the Ugandan government uh, a very small, I would call it a state surveillance starter kit, a, a small system of about two dozen cameras installed across the Ugandan capital of Kampala, um, and linked to a back-end system, command and control system that had facial recognition. And it was ostensibly to you know, help reduce crime. Uh, 
I, we have no idea how effective that state surveillance system was because the Uganda government is not very transparent on these statistics. But what we do know is when this Ugandan president, and his name is uh, Uweri Museveni, when Museveni actually, when, it came, when the time came for Museveni to come up for re-election, and that was in 2020, when the time came for him to, in the run-up to his next re -elec next election, uh, where he, had, he was going to run and try and win the bid for, you know, president, the pres presidency again, he essentially thought about installing a much broader surveillance system network. Uh, this was in 2018. And guess who he turned to? He essentially turned to Huawei. Um, and started and, and it worked, yeah. Exactly. So the starter kit was the prelude to a much bigger um, contract by the Ugandan government for Huawei. And what was really interesting to me about that was, um, you know, Huawei wasn't Huawei wasn't like immediately the first choice. But what they there was another Canadian company that bid it for the same contract. It was one hundred and twenty six million dollars and it was to install a couple hundred cameras across the Ugandan capital. Uh, again, supposed to fight crime, and but you will find out later what it was used for. Uh, I, I, I will let you know. Um, but Huawei wasn't the only bidder, but it had help. Uh, what happened was the Chinese ambassador to Uganda actually flew Ugandan officials down to Beijing to show them how the surveillance system was used in China itself, you know, by the Ministry of Public Security. And then subsequently flew them to the Huawei headquarters to kind of seal the deal. Um, and that's really how Huawei got the bid and how like a, you know, a Huawei system with, with facial recognition and um, cameras, it, I'll do that again. And that's essentially how you know, a facial recognition system sorry, one more no, time. That's essentially <laughs> how uh, a suite of surveillance cameras all equipped with facial recognition and powered by Huawei was installed in Uganda. Uh, and, and these cameras came in very, very handy when Museveni was running for re-election because in late 2020, protests broke out in Kampala by protesters who were upset that he was running again. You know, essentially he's president for life at this point. Um, people were upset and they were protesting on the street. And Museveni used that same facial recognition system to nab and lock up several of the protesters. So actually when it came to like election day or in the run up to election, like these troublemakers weren't seen on the street. Troublemakers in inverted commas. Yeah, so, so at least in the case of Uganda, we saw these systems, and, and everyone says technology is neutral, right? We definitely saw the system help prolong author an authoritarian dictator's rule. Yeah, so if you're if you're leading a country and, and you'd prefer to stay in power forever, perhaps a, a surveillance starter kit should be next on your shopping list. Um, now, now, you did mention, though, fighting crime. I mean, there, there is a good side to this too, uh, to be fair. And one example from your book is in Hangzhou, in the first six months of, of 2019, the, the local, you know, Chongyuan, the citizen police had, I think, uh, flagged, I'm reading this, 2,600 violations. Uh, these kind of a lower tier of police, they were a little armed around, they go around, you know, messing with street vendors and things like that. Uh, but this city eye surveillance project flagged 19,000 violations over the same time. Um, 
and and just made the city cleaner in the sense of of, of in many ways. So there, there is also a big positive. You know, if someone's taking an ambulance to, to the hospital, it can affect you know route the the, the traffic lights to to let that person get their let the ambulance get there faster. So there are some pretty significant positives that do come with surveillance as well. Uh, to what extent can those be disambiguated from the negatives? Uh, and, and to what extent do you feel that that free societies, dem democracies are going to embrace that that slightly different social contract? I mean, it seems to me at least somewhat inevitable that we'll take a few steps in that direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say state surveillance has two sides of a coin, right? So you talked about the positives where we had profiled a Chinese city very close to Shanghai called Hangzhou, in which the state surveillance system was used to ensure law and order on the street, for example. So the same public... Um, same publicly installed cameras with facial recognition that were supposedly catching Uyghur terrorists or, you know, or people whom the Chinese government felt might be troublemakers in Xinjiang. The same sort of cameras and the same technology would be turned on persons of interest um, in in a Chinese city with like wealthy Han Chinese. And when I, you know, I define persons of interest as the, the same way the Ministry of Public Security in China defines them, like people who might be fugitives or, you know, probably, or the other category would be like past drug offenders mm -hmm. or people that they knew were selling drugs on the street or um, the mentally ill that had escaped from homes, you know, um, the, the, the type of people that, if you were a parent and you had your son or daughter walking on the street, you'd be pretty alarmed if they had bumped into them. So yeah, in, in a place like Hangzhou and other wealthy Chinese cities, the state surveillance system is definitely used for more beneficial means. But essentially, you know, they're the two sides of the same coin. Um, without the right checks and balances, it can easily veer from the positive side to the very sinister and nefarious side. And I think we definitely saw that with COVID uh, in China, where all of a sudden these you know, publicly installed um, surveillance cameras on the street were turned on you if you were a close contact or if you were a COVID patient, right? In the early days uh, of the coronavirus, the Chinese police had used these cameras to track down where you had been if you were a COVID patient so that they could round up the close contacts or, you know, who you had spoken to, for example. So you're essentially treated the same way someone they suspect as a is a terrorist in Xinjiang would be treated with the cameras. And that's because there's no check and balance in China at all. And there are no safeguards to it against doing that. Yeah, and if you're if you're a political dissident or you're, you're somebody the government may, may not wa want moving around, especially during a sensitive time, uh, we're learning that you may find your COVID pass, you know, revoked, so to speak, like you, you know, that, that, that medical function can also be used as a tool of political control, even though in theory, they were supposed to be distinct things. You know, another just kind of more personal question, uh, because I'm, I'm sure you know a lot of Chinese people, uh, as do I. And you know, I worked in with China, I should say, uh, for about 10 years, uh, cross-border investment work. Uh, I've I, I kind of given up. I don't really talk about politics with, with Chinese, you know, generally under about age 40, uh, with a few exceptions, just because it's frankly, it's just hard to have a conversation. Um, you know, they've learned quite different things come, coming up in school. Uh, how do you talk about these topics or how do you talk about your book or just the topics in general, I guess, with, with Chinese people generally? Yeah, I mean, you, you remind me of an interesting experience I had when I first moved to China. I think this was like 
2010-2011 and I was speaking to a girl who I was hanging out a lot with at that point she's probably in her early 30s and I had asked her about Tiananmen Square and it was so shocking to me that she had never heard of Tiananmen Square and that was when I realized how cloistered um, they were and how the history textbooks in China were completely scrubbed of the incident. I mean, it was jarring, but it was a welcome to China moment yeah. for me at that point. Uh, I, I I would say, you know, it, similarly with Xinjiang, it it's 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 not too different. Um, if you talk to Chinese people about Xinjiang within China itself, because the the Chinese Great Internet Firewall has blocked out so many reports by the foreign press on Xinjiang. A lot of what Chinese citizens citizens are consuming at this point are just local narratives or the state the state led narrative on Xinjiang, which is that they are trying to crack down on terrorism in Xinjiang or to make sure that there's no social instability there, and a lot of the internment camps are there to teach. Um, Uyghurs Chinese so that they can integrate in society, raise their economic status uh, so that they understand the rules and the laws of the CCP in China better. So that's like the state narrative that the Chinese consume, the Chinese outside of Xinjiang at least. And, and, and um, I would say the, the, the media uh, not only blocks the Western view, but, but sometimes attacks it and says oh, they're trying to manipulate uh, your view. They're trying to make up lies that, that are not true. We're, we're giving these people jobs. We're giving them language skills, make, you know, putting them in a modern life. They're happy. Um, and so they're basically maligning the Western media narrative at the same time. Exactly. So undercutting a lot of the foreign reports so that, you know, we kind of, or if you work for the Wall Street Journal or any of the American papers or foreign papers, you're seen as unreliable. Um, and the Chinese, the Chinese propaganda department will definitely play up their own narratives. So it is difficult to talk to people about such topics. Um, it is almost easier to talk to them about the benefits or, or I guess like the, the positives of the state surveillance system because most people agree that, you know, and they're, and they're comfortable with the idea of being watched because they expected this yeah, anyway. Yeah. Exactly. And um, the reason why they're, they're happy with this trade-off is because they, they do see the positive externalities that come out from it. So it, it was almost easier to talk to them about that topic, you know, uh, than to bring up a topic like privacy or uh, Xinjiang. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's definitely a different uh, social contract in China. You, you, you give up a lot of privacy and they're just so used to it. And those of us outside of China look at it very differently. It's just a different, different system. Um, Totally shifting gears here. Uh, you recently pinned a front page article for the Wall Street Journal about 40 something uh, high level American citizen or American resident executives who had who immediately got had to leave their jobs at Chinese run semiconductor firms thanks to some new U.S. legislation. Uh, my question is, and some people on Twitter were saying this is going to totally cripple the Chinese uh, semiconductor industry. Uh, do you think it will? And secondly, whatever effect it does have on, on semiconductors, how, how does that uh, affect China's overall plans for you know, surveillance and, and this kind of move towards world domination uh, that, that would follow on? Yeah, so the U.S. Commerce Department introduced these new export controls 
essentially banning any U.S. persons or companies um, from providing any help to advancing China's development in the area of like high performance chips or, you know, cutting edge chips. Um, and it isn't just like banning U.S. persons from helping. It's also banning any of the chip exports that might go into advancing such a cause and it's ban banning chip equipment that might be used as well. So it is a very sweeping and and now that it's been out for two weeks, we also know it's quite damaging blow to the Chinese, um, to China's development of its own semiconductor industry, simply because China's been so reliant on, you know, American technology and American chips in the past. Because if you look at the semiconductor kind of supply chain, uh, China's essentially you break down the supply chain into three different areas. First is chip design, right? And that's where all the innovation happens. And that would be companies like NVIDIA. It would be companies like Intel. They'll be doing this chip, chip design or they'll be providing chip design systems like a Cadence, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, just an American company providing chip design that's really kind of dominated the market. And then the second, uh, the second category would be uh, making these chips. So you think about the foundries and the manufacturing, and that would be your TSMCs and your Samsungs. Yep. And finally, the third category would be packaging and testing these chips after they're made, they're packaged and they're tested. China is really essentially only strong in the third component. And then the first and second component, they're still far behind their foreign counterparts. So what the US did was to cut off the entire top, right? And, and, and that's uh, and and from all the people that I've been speaking to, uh, they say that that's going to take China back. It's definitely going to push China's you know advancement of its own industry back by several years. Um, so, so it is pretty damaging. Term, it sounds like overall. In short, yes. Uh, in the short term, it's going to be very damaging to China. In the longer term, people expect China to just get more determined to create its own self-sufficient kind of technological industry. And in the longer term, it actually might might bode. In the longer term, it actually might be very negative for the U.S. because they're essentially cut out of this globalized supply chain, and China is a big consumer of chips. Yeah, you know, we are in the era of deglobalization, and you know, it's a pity in, in in one sense, right? Because the world wins when we all work together, and and you know, Ricardian economics, we each focus on on different relative specialties, but um, unfortunately, that that's not happening right now, and I don't think that's likely to change anytime soon for better or for worse. But it's been very interesting to have you here, Lisa, author of Surveillance State. You can get it wherever books are sold, at least I believe. Uh, Lisa Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to you guys, as always, for watching at home. Thanks for having me, James. Hi there. I'm Brian Christopher. My team and I write the Follow the Money investment newsletter published by South Bank Research. In it, we tackle lots of investing questions and we provide answers. And today, there's something I want you to realize. You already know enough to make money in these markets. You already know enough to be a great investor on your own. My point in telling you this isn't because I don't want you to subscribe to my newsletter. I do. But this is the information I'd like you to give me if you were in my position. I want you to recognize something. Your ability to find investing situations you can take advantage of comes down to two words, imminent versus inevitable.
Per the Cambridge Dictionary, imminent means coming or likely to happen very soon. A synonym of imminent is impending. If you know what's coming imminently, you could be a very good trader. If you know Diageo will report better than an expected income on its next earnings call, you can make a few quid by buying shares or options in that name. If you know Chelsea will beat the spread in its next game, you can place a wager and collect from William Hill. If you could gather that kind of information on a regular basis, you would make some money. But it's tough to do well consistently. Some can, and my goodness, more power to them. But there's a much simpler way to make money, to get rich even, and it really isn't that hard. As you sit here today, there are certain things that you know will happen. For example, you will make mistakes. You may even fail. You will set out to perform a task and you won't succeed. An exam in school, a project at work, maybe even an investment that goes down in price. That will happen. It's happened before to you and it will happen again. You know this. Also, you will get older. Father time is undefeated. We have yet to see anyone age from adulthood to youth. Though, some say the diapers we require and the drooling we do in our later years disprove that. But you know what I mean. The more years we're on this earth, the closer we are to shedding our mortal coil. These events I've just described are inevitable. The Cambridge Dictionary says inevitable means certain to happen and unable to be avoided or prevented. Death is inevitable. But you knew that. That's actually why some people buy life insurance as an investment on the inevitable. The thing you may not realize is that in investing, in economics, some events are inevitable too. For example, governments, and more specifically politicians, will do things that are not in your best interest. Take a look at this chart. This is the public debt outstanding in the U.S. It's inevitable, in my opinion, that it will continue to rise. This chart is of U.S. debt, but it reflects a lot of governments that don't know how to say no. They don't know how to do what is in their constituents' best interests. Most government leaders now view themselves as social media stars, influencers, if you will, that makes it even tougher to make difficult decisions. They just make ones that their followers seek. Inevitably, that means they spend more. In investing, we will always have cycles. They're inevitable. The actions of the U.S. Federal Reserve are symbolic of why this is. In late 2020, the Fed cut interest rates to zero. The federal government sent billions of dollars in stimulus to U.S. consumers and businesses. That got them consuming. Soon, vaccines became available. The COVID pandemic eased. People went back to work or continued to work. Yet rates stayed at zero. The Fed, blind to the fire it was fueling, kept the stimulatory pedal down to the floor, even though the U.S. employment rate, unemployment rate had fallen back below 4%. People were working. Stimulus was flowing. And the lower-than-low federal funds rate made access to loans easy. The Fed and the U.S. government had the ingredients, and they followed the recipe for inflation to a T. 
Why? I have no idea. But, as you can see in this image, U.S. recessions tend to follow periods of rate hikes by the Fed. Let me say that again. In the U.S., recessions always follow periods of high Fed funds rates. Logical people ask the question, why do they keep hiking if history tells them what the result will be? Some theorize they don't know what they're doing. That's quite a theory, considering they have an amazingly powerful role that affects everything in the world. And look at rates now. They're rising. The Fed says they're not done rising. Some ask if the U.S. will be able to avoid a recession. The answer? No. It's inevitable. We're already in one. That's what the Fed does. But don't be dissuaded by the people who tell you we aren't in a recession. You know, the ones who are trying to change the definition of recession to best serve their agenda. A recession is generally defined as achieving negative GDP in two successive quarters. The U.S. has had that. But shoot, if the Americans want to revert to the Cambridge Dictionary, you can see we still meet the definition. A period when the economy of a country is not successful and conditions for business are bad. Yep, that fits. The Cambridge examples are particularly coincidental. The one that speaks about reserves and raw materials? Classic. The U.S. now has the lowest strategic petroleum reserve since the 1980s. The U.S. didn't just pursue policies that would create a recession, it pursued policies that would exacerbate a recession. Brilliant. Other countries will experience this too. Shoot, the UK is already in a recession, but I don't need to tell you that. Luckily, in the wake of recessions, something else generally happens. Positive market returns. The recession and the events that lead up to it, like rate hikes, have negative effects on returns. The economy is often on better footing after suffering through those. Here's the thing. As I said, I believe we're in a recession right now. We're seeing recession-like returns from stocks and bonds. You know that. We're also seeing them from commodities. Fed, you're achieving results. Prices are falling. It isn't necessary to strangle the economy with many more hikes. You're getting the desired effect. And to you watching, the investors, as we work through this recession, look for asset prices to rise again. This includes commodities. Position yourself for this inevitable event. Have dry powder. Prepare to use it. The returns can be life-changing. Remember, the U.S. has removed 189 million barrels of its strategic petroleum reserves for political purposes since the start of the year. More than 250 million barrels have been removed from the, from the reserve since its 2020 peak, and leaders have authorized more in advance of midterm elections. Why would the U.S. deplete the reserve if, in its words, a war is raging? What if it continues to do so? What if the weather gets cold? Or, God forbid, there's a real national emergency. And does the U.S. recognize it's increasing its reliance on countries that it poo-poos? Countries that may not want to play ball? Goldman raised its 2022 Brent price forecast to $104 per barrel, 
and its 2023 forecast to 110. One can certainly argue that such a rise in the oil price isn't inevitable, but I would disagree. I believe prices can go even higher than Goldman says. I have more examples of inevitable events. If you'd like to hear more, leave a note in the comments and we'll create another one of these videos. I have some personal stories I'd like to share as well. In the meantime, you should consider events that you consider to be inevitable. Make them your friend. First, recognize them. Then consider, are they investable? Via what method or methods? What's the time frame for you to invest without missing out? There are many, and these aren't limited to public shares. Thank you for watching.